most of you probably know that last year we started a new tradition with the festival where we were going to start commissioning new work every year. Um, so this is our second go at it, and we named these pieces the short docs. And so this year's short docs are, again, the starting panel of the whole conference. From the start, we decided on a few rules for these short docs. Uh, we'd pick a theme and invite producers around the world to submit story ideas about the theme. We'd keep them relatively short, five to eight minutes. And we would encourage producers to interpret the theme really as broadly as possible. We're trying to test the versatility of the documentary form to some degree. So we really welcomed um, every idea imaginable, as long as it had something to do with the theme. Last year's theme was thirst. And this year we've moved on to maybe a slightly more visual notion, darkness. Uh, like last year, we received dozens of proposals, 120 in all, and we chose four that we hope range from literal to maybe the most oblique interpretation of darkness. Um, but we're really looking for a widespread of that interpretation, not just story idea, but tone and essence and entirely um, just concept of darkness. We're going for the whole spectrum. Um, now we're going to hear these pieces, and we're going to talk a little bit to the producers who made them. And we couldn't be happier to have Jay Allison guiding us through this very first panel of the conference. He's the founder of Atlantic Public Media, Transom.org, part of the Lost and Found Sound team with the Kitchen Sisters, PRX Guru, and in general, all-around, non-failing innovator and champion of pretty much everything creative in radio. So he's the perfect person to take us into the darkness, and as well illuminate some of the more interesting things about what we're about to hear. So let's get going. Please welcome Jay Allison and the authors of The Short Docs, Adam Burke, Jude Fletcher, Hugh Levinson, and Rick Moody. Finally, 
seduced, enchanted, and exhausted by images, we will return with our eyes closed to the radio, which will vanish only when stories do. Welcome to Chicago, back to the Holiday Inn. <laughs> City of low-hanging clouds. <laughs> and thanks to Julie and Johanna and BZ and everybody who makes this conference possible. So first thing on the first morning, we want to get things off to a bright and optimistic start, so we have a session on darkness. <laughs> that sound, by the way, was recorded by Tom Lopez in Brazil, and uh, he wrote about it on transom in the, in the tools section, talking about how to prepare your gear to go field recording. And actually, it was a recommendation to always have a flashlight with you. He said uh, he, he had stopped, on the, it was light when he went into the jungle, and it was got dark, and uh, he, he just he started to hear the sound, and he found a path and ran down, and he said, the jungle was screaming, and every minute new creatures were joining in, layers and layers of screaming. I don't know how those bugs can pitch themselves up so high. I thought they'd pierce my eardrums, and to top it off, it's now pitch black. I can't even see myself, but I don't want to leave. It's mainly high-pitched shrieking, but there's also lower-pitched growlings and snappings, and there's things moving about. God knows they sound like they have claws or pinchers, and they're, what, a few feet away? Twigs are snapping, and things prowl about, and leaves are pushed aside. And if it weren't pitch black, I'd probably see little pairs of beady eyes watching me. And by the sound of it, there's creatures being eaten 360 degrees around me. <laughs> and so there I am in total blackness, scared almost senseless, and suddenly something drops out of the jungle canopy above me and a womp lands right on my back. Now I've seen those tarantulas they have in Brazil and they're as big as your face. <laughs> and that's what I'm certain just fell on my back. Something big and soft and filled with blood and looking for more. <laughs> and then he recommends you always have a flashlight with him. <laughs> They've got new LED flashlights, by the way. I don't know if you've seen They've done remarkable advances in flashlight technology. Go online because they're, you can get good little ones now. So uh, we're here to illuminate the darkness, which is a worthy task for radio. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about the past uh, Lifetime Achievement Award winners at the Third Coast. And so I just a few words about them before we start and how they relate to light and darkness. Bill Seemering, he was the first director of programming at NPR, and uh, his vision in many ways set the course for all of public radio, and his words still guide us uh, to give voice to the voiceless and literally in the mission statement to shine light into the shadows. And his words remain a challenge, really, and a test of our accomplishment, which sometimes we pass and sometimes we don't. And Joe Frank whose voice fits better in the darkness than anyone else's in America, maybe. In the dark, like in Tom Lopez's jungle, we are poorly defended against the insinuation of Joe Frank's mind into our own. 
He whispers to us to let him in, and we do. Joe reminds us of the dark power of radio by bringing us close to our own dark parts. And Studs Terkel, who has gone to more unlit places and shed more light than anyone I can think of. He rails against the darkness. I had the good fortune to watch the last game of the World Series with Studs, who's just come out of surgery, and he's doing, he was doing much, much better. He's uh, full of spirit and feistiness. And uh, the, my pleasure at watching the Red Sox win was mitigated by his memory that they were the last Major League Baseball team to integrate another double turn on the notion of darkness. He also said, I was asking him about being blacklisted, Speaking of darkness, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I would recommend being blacklisted as a great career move. <laughs> said he wouldn't have written anything if he hadn't been. So Studs and the others show us that darkness provides a context for conscience. And in public radio, a public conscience, encouraging the parts of each of us which defend against our own darkness and the darkness of our times. All right, this is a panel. We've got, uh, these pieces were all commissioned and we're going to play them each. Um, There are as various as you could ask for in style and in subject. We're going to turn the lights out for each one because, you know, why wouldn't we? And... um, most of them are not nearly so ponderous as everything I've just said, but uh, we're, I think we'll just, we're going to play them and we'll talk about them kind of like we do on transom.org. We'll talk about uh, uh, process and, uh, and we'll talk about technical stuff because we like to do that and, uh, and choices. And then I hope there'll be a little time at the end for questions, but there may not be, in which case you can seek these people out and, uh, and, and talk to them uh, individually. So we are, and I've, I've, I've asked everybody too to think about, you know, when you play, when you make a piece and you work on it and then finally you play it in a room like this and you can hear the breathing and the, you, everything is perceived differently than it was when you were in front of your mixer and all of a sudden you realize all the mistakes you made. <laughs> Um, so I'm hoping, that, you know, well, I'm not hoping they'll have that feeling, but if they do, then they can, <laughs> they can talk about that. Um, so we're going to start with one which, rather li- which, which is really rather literally uh, in the dark, and I think it's a, a good place to start. It's, it's by Adam Burke. Do you have anything to say about it before we go, or should we just take the lights out and get busy? Let's get busy. All right. <laughs> The lobby of the Blind Cow Restaurant is an expansive space. High ceilings, hard surfaces. On a summer evening, giant panes of stained glass throw puddles of candy-colored sunlight across the floor. The hostess roams the room, setting out ashtrays and candles. Not one visitor takes to the chairs. They're putting bags and coats in lockers. Some pace idly, others chatter near the reception desk or survey the giant menu on the wall with its fine appetizers and entrees. But my attention keeps darting toward the heavy black curtain in one corner of the room. 
and after what seems like forever, a slight woman with close-cropped hair and motionless eyes slips into view. Good evening. My name is Elizabeth Sinstad. You just call me Elizabeth in the dark, okay? You walk behind me, put your hands on the shoulder, and this is how I will guide you in. Elizabeth takes us behind the curtain into a curved passageway padded on all sides with black material and dimly lit, a kind of airlock for light between the lobby and the dining room. Now, if you need something, you call my name. But call me urgently, please, if you don't feel well for whatever reason, because no one would see that in the dark. Okay. You are not wearing any luminous watch? No. And uh, no handy switched on? No. Okay. You feel feeling okay? Yeah, I feel fine. Sounds like it. Okay. Yeah. You move in a line, hands on the shoulders of the person in front of you, shuffling your feet. You have the sensation that you're headed down a slight incline, but that's an illusion. Apparently, this sensation is the eyes handing over navigational control, perhaps reluctantly, to the other senses, as the light gets dimmer and you finally pass through a second curtain into total darkness. Sight is taken away from you completely and replaced by sound. Eating at the blind cow takes some getting used to. Some diners experience a sense of claustrophobia or fear. One woman said she felt as if she were wrapped in cotton. And when I meet this Swiss couple, Philip and Andrea, they're holding one another in the dark. Now it's it's a little better. It's a bit uh, more secure, but. Uh... But at first you were very um, helpless. I think they could do with you what they want. <laughs> Once seated, you set about exploring the small province of your table setting. It's surprising, for example, to reach out for the water glass and discover how far away it is. In this fathomless space, the blind waitresses possess a kind of sorcery. They materialize beside you, out of nowhere, to fill your glass or take your order. You can hear them moving through the restaurant, avoiding collisions using finger snaps and the word "achtung," which means attention. And they move with incredible speed from dining room to bus station to kitchen, carrying hot coffee, clearing plates. Meanwhile, the eyes aren't giving up without a fight. They blink and struggle in their sockets, straining at the blackness for something, anything to look at. Annalise, one of the waitresses, tells me most visitors go through this. They're always a little scared, and they think, "Oh, how can I eat my food? And how can I orientate myself in the dark?" But as soon as they are inside and they are sitting, most people start to relax. And once they notice that they don't have to try to see anything. They really get comfortable. As food and drink flow from kitchen to table, the dining room warms with conversation. Here is coming to you. The woman next to me insists I try an onion ring off her plate. Yeah, I think it's onion ring. Yeah, it's crispy. It is crispy. Crispy and fried. Mm-hmm. And cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brent and his sister Bettina from the United States are having a bit of a time trying to share food, and during a toast. He hits her in the head with a wine glass. <laughs> so half of this conversation has been us 
searching for the things that were on the table that we just put down. And we don't know who is serving us. We don't know whether something has just happened. <laughs> like I, during this conversation, I just realized I have a tort here. I didn't know the tort was here. <laughs> I didn't until, until I went to reach down for my coffee. <laughs> In some ways, this whole experience is a humorous look at how visually dependent we are. But my waitress Elizabeth points out that sitting down to eat in the dark is a rare opportunity for the other senses. Say, if you're eating a carrot, the eyes see this carrot and the brain gets the message. Then your nose constantly say, well, it smells of, of leeks or of something totally different. Because that's out of the question. The eyes have already dictated the, the, the fact. I remember my own dinner in the restaurant fumbling through the tricky business of eating salad without getting to see it, I tried using a fork, unsuccessfully. I cheated, handling the dripping leaves of lettuce with my fingers, and halfway through this discourse between hands, mouth, and plate, I came upon something spherical, the consistency of goat cheese, a dollop the size of a gumball. What was this thing? I gave it a taste, definitely not cheese. Incredibly rich, smooth, and while it was decidedly not meat, it had the fatty persistence of pâté. I sat around in the dark, waiting, and eventually the report from Tongue Central came in, like a slow fax, that this strange, unearthly delight was an egg yolk. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the restaurant lobby after three hours in the dark, the soft light and covered fixtures are aggressive, almost violent. Is it the sheer intensity of light that short-circuits the other senses? Or is it a power play by the eyes themselves? That's probably a question better left to neurology. Anyway, I think Elizabeth was right. Getting the eyes out of the way is a good thing. The other senses have a chance to actually do what... I guess they would very much like to do, but can't, because the eyes are very dominant. Darkness brings us back to the native language of ears and reminds us that we live in a world of clattering cutlery and sumptuous voices. And it poses a question that yesterday seemed utterly obvious. What do you have on your plate? What do you have on your plate? It's a question worth asking, with your hands out and your eyes closed. There's one moment in that piece, I don't know, maybe everybody agrees or maybe nobody does, but the I think it, the, the remarkable moment of the egg yolk, uh, for the writing and the reading, but especially because it's the one moment when it really sounds dark. I'm, the rest of it, there's nothing to let you know that that restaurant is any darker than any other restaurant, but it evaporates and goes to a kind of a tone there, just sort of a, an empty spatial sound, and then just for the words egg yolk, it becomes silent. I, that was a lovely bit of production, I thought. 
Uh, do you want to talk a little, I mean, one, one thing that Adam and I mentioned is just the challenges, you know, like I say, we all like to talk about microphones and levels and meters. I mean, it's a good thing we're not writers because, you know, would you get talk about pens? Uh, but, uh, you had to do this completely in the, in the black. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that was the, obviously the big challenge was, uh, was working in the dark. I mean, you know, it's tough enough to get good levels when you can see people, and uh, yeah, I mean, I only hit one person in the head with my shotgun mic, so that was a good. I considered that a, a sort of a victory. But um, yeah, I mean, that you know, I was basically riding around on with this blind waitress. I guess you could call it riding. Uh, you know, holding her shoulder and kind of getting sound. And um, you also use your eyes, especially with the headphones on, to to figure out where you are, kind of have a sense of direction. So um, that was a challenge. But um, it, I love I loved the puzzle. I mean, that's for me, that was part of the fun of doing the piece was, you know, how how am I going to get the sound that I need in this? And uh, I thought, you know, it, it, did you pay a whole lot of attention to how the ambience played with the words? I mean, there were moments, I don't know whether they were just sort of fortuitous or serendipitous, where, you know, a certain phrase would appear and then the ambience would say, ooh. Or something like that. Were those? Con- I mean, did you consciously build the ambience around yourself? Yeah, that's all like digital world. You know, um, just I guess Tom was saying something about Barrett talking about you know creating dramatic moments, and that's really yeah what I was doing. Uh, I'm going to ask a couple more questions. I think I'm going to change the plan. If anybody wants to ask, a qu- I think it's probably better to have people ask, uh, and I'll, I'll just have to cut people off so we have time. But just feel free to stand up at a microphone if if you have a question, and I'll ask one while you get up the nerve to do that. Um, how about your reading? I mean, that was one thing that made it feel dark. I mean, you, I, I mean, it, do we do we feel like whispering when it's dark, or is there sort of a golf gamey thing? <laughs> I don't know what you mean by the golf gamey thing, but well, you know how they announce. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, yeah, we actually. Johanna and Julie and I actually went back for a second pass because the first reading that I did was, uh, w- I guess, way too dark or way too serious. And um, yeah, I mean, when you're in a restaurant where people are kind of freaked out, they um, they're sort of initially reverent and then eventually they're really gregarious, and some of them even take off their clothes. So uh, apparently, I mean, you know, why I, didn't I don't you really mention know. that? Uh, um, <laughs> You know, I mean, that's that's sort of a challenge, you know, what, what you leave in and what you take out. Do you know they took their clothes off? Yeah, one guy actually told me that he... Oh, he had to tell yeah, you. Yeah, he, he was with... And, and then a waitress said to me, you know, all these people come in here, all these sighted people come in here, and they think we don't... We don't know what they're doing, you know. Uh, you know, we're not deaf, you know. We're, 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 and we're next to them. So, I mean, you know, it was, there was a lot of really humorous stuff that I had to kind of let go of because, you know, we were really interested in trying to tell this experience of, of what it's like to eat there and kind of catalog the various, you know, emotional reactions to what, what it's like to eat in the dark. So, and then, you know, my job on top of that was to try to, to find the sound to go with that. And there was, there was a lot of sort of disastrous results, but, you know, I just kept going and tried to. You, you know, when you're when you actually can stick a microphone into the middle of someone's table, you know, without them knowing that that you're there, it's um, it does away with all that mic. It's really empowering. Stuff, yeah. yeah, like people never shrink back. You know, they yeah. just they just get right into it, or they're already into it, and they don't know you're there. So it's, it's it was a very satisfying sense in, in in that way. But you know, at the same time, trying to actually get it, get the right sound, and get good levels, and that I mean, that was really tricky. 
Can you talk about that egg yolk moment? Did you think this is the one moment I'll make this abstract? And because that was it, right? There, everything else was pretty much concrete. Yeah. Uh, um, well, I, it was just sort of like working in the dark, you know. I mean, I just kind of write and just write my way into the story and and just bumble around, really. And um, I came to that moment and wrote about it and realized that that was really satisfying. And um, and then Julie and Johanna both agreed that it was a very satisfying moment in the piece, so we kind of worked with it. Did you ever think about not writing, making it a non-narrative piece? No. I, I, I didn't have enough. I mean, I, I probably, yeah, yeah, I could have, but, I mean, it would be a really, like you say, it would be a really different piece. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't say that, actually. I didn't, but I was thinking it. Yeah, yeah, it would be a really different piece without the without the narrative, and um, and I wish that I wish that I mean, I guess that's the thing that I left this with was just God. I wish I could do three of these or four of these. I, mean, I should certainly have enough sound for for four. So. Yeah, I wonder when we go out and record whether we think in some default way of. You know, what's, is there an ideal? Do we go thinking, I'm going to write this or I'm going to let it tell itself? Do we go and see if it can tell itself and then step in to write if it can't? Um, I suppose everybody has a different way about thinking, but that seems always a real turning point in the production of every piece, uh, is the presence of, 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 wor- of, of words and narrative. Sure, this is Hugh. I don't know. Um, it's interesting because my colleagues did a piece about the blind cow three years ago, um, a slightly shorter piece, and it's completely different in style, um, completely different. Uh, and um, there are a couple of things that are the same, but, but um, it, it's all done on location. So the whole thing is done with a single mic, because it's not stereo, so you don't get that lovely sound picture. But, but um, it, it, it's got a, a more immediate feel, I think, but not such a deep feel. Uh, and um, you mentioned that some people get a bit paranoid, and that's what happens to the presenter, which is what makes the bit where it comes alive is where he keeps, where the waiter says, you know, your food's here. And he goes, where, where, here. And he says, here, what do you mean here, here. Uh, 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 and you can hear it in his voice. I mean, he's really freaked out by the experience, which I can understand. Uh, and so it's, it, it, it's, um, it's very, very different. But I think it's not, it's not as, as deep. Uh, um, but it's more sort of, more, uh, takes you to the person. Uh, so it's interesting what you get and what you lose by different approaches, I think. Yeah, I mean, any time you're sampling, you know, selecting so intently, you're going to have that kind of, Lack of immediacy that yeah is really raw and valuable in a piece. So yeah, I, I mean I think that to, to answer your question about um, what was your question, uh, <laughs> I, I think I, th- I think you were talking about um, the choices we make and um, this piece even more than any other. You know, I mean I just try to I try to prepare and prepare and prepare, and then when you go out, you're sort of you just sort of go down different rabbit holes and just explore around and, and try to try to figure out what's really going on because you you know you've kind of invented this thing in the abstract and then you get confronted by what's real and usually the gulf between those two things the the, the platonic ideal and then the, the real stuff that you actually get there's missing pieces and I think that's where the the narration fills in mm-hmm. those gaps. We'll have some pieces that are. I think we no. I guess we have some. There's, yeah, no, there's a narrative presence in each of the pieces. Do we have? A, we had somebody got up to ask a question. Yeah, I just I wanted to ask about one of the sounds. It sounded like a train coming through. Was that the egg yolk moment? There's at one yeah. point there was a sound that sounded like it came from a different ambience, or maybe it was a train going by the restaurant. But it, it no, it, it was dramatic, and I wondered about that. Yeah, that, that was actually um, the sound of the restaurant. Um, I just tweaked it using a bunch of 
audio tools and um, and just kind of turned it into something else and added some I don't know weird little chirpy things and uh, just to cre- to create a new a new space for this moment because you know initially we just got restaurant 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 and there are these sort of punctuated moments of sound but really we we wanted to create a different space for that we were like should we use music no that'd be kind of cheesy to use music at that point you know you're just for one thing kind of divisively so I, I just tried to meet the need halfway and create some sound for that section one more question and then, yeah. I just had a question about not the sound but did you get a chance to see the place like were you in there in the light at all or was your initial experience of it in the dark my initial experience was in the dark, um, but I am the only journalist that's ever seen the restaurant. And that's because um, uh, the waitress who I was working with, Annalise, uh, took, I, I spent a day with her, you know, uh, riding around trains in Zurich and stuff and talking to her. And we got to the restaurant, and it was the manager's day off. And so she just took me in. Because she was, you know, young and fun-loving, and like, come on in, check out, check our place out. And uh, the manager heard about it the next day, and he was really pissed because um, you're, he said, you know, basically, you're not supposed to see the restaurant. You know, people come in, they have they have pictures, they have ideas about what the space is, and of course, it's remarkably unremarkable when you see it um, compared to. It was in the midst of it. Yeah, I mean, I went, I ate there the first night to kind of gather kind of a sense of, okay, what the hell am I going to do with this? How am I going to do it? And then the next day I, I came into work, and that was the, the, the day that I saw it. Um, did, did he ask you not to describe it? Yeah, he said, will you please not turn this piece into that? Mm-hmm. Apparently there's, like, film crews come in and they want to use infrared night vision and, like, do some sort of, you know, racy thing. And... uh I, 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 that wasn't really my intention at all. I, I, I didn't really think I was going to get to see it, but you know, I just kind of went with the flow and got lucky. Maybe not. I mean, I don't know. In a way, you kind of wish you hadn't. Um, no. I mean, no. I realized, actually, because I ate there afterwards. I, ha- I had a blind date at the Blind Cow as well, <laughs> which is another story. Um, but, and I was wondering what would happen you know, when I went back there, would I would I would I know where I was? And I was, I still was just kind of floating around in, in nothingness. Like I didn't know where things were, and I didn't really have a sense of what was going on in the room. I knew where the bar was. I knew a, a little bit more about that. But I also explored it in the dark. So maybe that helped get back there. I tried to convince the manager that my experience really was still very authentic, but he didn't buy it. So. <laughs> The floating around in nothingness is a fair description of a blind date. But uh, well, thank you, Adam. Uh, the next piece we're going to play is called The Color is Black, and it's by Rick Moody, uh, a writer, uh, with, uh, in, in a collaboration with a French sound designer, Jerome Schmidt. And do you have anything to say, or should we just turn the lights off? Let fly. There's the blackness of black comedy, 
dark humor that provokes laughter and makes the audience ill at ease. There's the semi-solid black-capped plug of greasy material blocking the outlet of a sebaceous gland in the skin, otherwise known to teenagers as the blackhead. What about blackouts? As when alcohol rushes into the bloodstream delirium of blackouts. The blackness of the New York City blackout, its looting of shops and general disorder. blackness of black holes, somber objects of enormous density, such that even light lacks the velocity necessary to escape their gravitation. The blackness of the black dwarf, exhausted core of an exhausted star. The incredibly copious black fauna of planet Earth, such as the Ursus Americanus, or black bear. Likewise, the black widow spider, whose neurotoxin is sometimes fatal to children. The blackness of the black bird in dead of night, the black rat, the black swallowtail butterfly. We have such black places as the Black Belt of Alabama, known for its fertile soil, the Big Black River of western Mississippi, and then places darker and darker, known for negation, hellishness, until we arrive at the Black Hole of Calcutta, where it is said by some that 146 British prisoners were kept overnight in a 15 by 18 foot cell, after which only 21 survived. Now the advancing figures of black-garbed teenagers in their schoolyard massacres across our nation. The blackness of Black Friday, September 24, 1869, when two investors tried to corner the market in gold. The blackness of Blackwater fever, that dangerous form of malaria. The Black Death, which appears to have begun its journey in eastern China following the Silk Road traders until it arrived in the Mideast after which it devastated most of Europe. The brutality visited upon those who preceded us here, for example, the Blackfoot Indians of the Upper Missouri who were pushed to the brink of starvation when the white man killed off the buffalo. The blackness of black Americans forcibly imported here from sub-Saharan Africa in the slave trade, first into the West Indies by the Spanish and later by the British monarchy. The blackness of their descendants, such as Crispus Attucks, the blackness of Nat Turner, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, the blackness of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Now we are demanding the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. Thank you.
black magic, the putative means by which the witches of Salem attempted to bring down the Puritans, the most potent ritual of which was the black mass, which follows the Roman mass but with everything upside down. And two last things to remember, the black list, wherein people are deprived of livelihood because of political belief, where all is fear and dark stratagems, and finally the black rain of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that precipitation which falls over a city after the three-part destruction of blast, heat, and radiation. The human color is black, primordial, eternal, heartless, full of sorrow, upon every forehead the burdensome ornament of black conscience, and in every heart a recognition that the strip mall and the subdivision and the offices of the online cosmetic surgeon are all built upon the color black. Uh, Rick makes radio. He also writes, as you as you probably know, and I, I think probably has talked a lot about uh, translation of writing. He, he wrote the book The Ice Storm, which was made into a movie, so has experience with this idea of taking what you've made and turning it into another medium. I asked him an email uh, about the idea of uh, adding sound to his writing because this came from his memoir toward the end of the end of the uh, me- memoir, The Black Veil. Uh, and he wrote back and said, it's less that the sound is added to my words than that the words are created in my head as sound in the first place, only later as text. The writing is what I do, but it is a second step in what is primarily an auditory journey. That is, language is music. Being interested in the audio properties of language is getting closer to the, quote, source, as Neil Young says. So did uh, talk a little bit about how this then came out of the book and became this piece and uh and also maybe a little bit about the collaboration with the musician. Um <clears throat> well when I heard that the that the festival was soliciting work on the subject of darkness I realized that there were many opportunities in what I had written to contribute. <laughs> <clears throat> and um I knew there was this passage in the Black Veil that was all about things that were black, and it just leapt out uh, to me as as a possibility for for the festival. Um, but I've noticed in general, because I read a lot, I'm involved in reading aloud for my work a lot, that certain kinds of, of um, texts really lend themselves to being auditory, to being heard, and liturgical uh, texts, rep- repetitious texts, Texts with anaphora—that's the Greek word for it—are um, really great out loud. So um, I wanted to work with this passage in a, in a sound uh, environment all along. It just seemed natural, and um, I happened uh, when in in France last May to run into this incredibly energetic young French electronic musician, and and I just thought it'd be a great collaboration to work with him. It was really fluid and. The ideas went back and forth really uh, evenly. We thought about it the same way. We wanted it to have a really uh, unrelenting, claustrophobic, scary tone, and I think we succeeded. (laughs) (laughs) 
Did you work in the same room, or did you uh, send things back and forth? Did he fit music to to your voice, or did he come up with a score and you read to it, or how did that work? Actually, I recorded myself doing the reading at home, and, and if I stripped off the electronic music, you'd hear a lot of birds and, like, the lawnmower going by and stuff like that. Mm. But um, then I I, uh, I gave it to, to Jerome, uh, you know, across the Internet. I've only actually been in the room with him once. Ah. Yeah. And did, and did he take, then did he take your voice and produce the piece? Because it seemed like there was phasing on your voice, too. There's a little phasing, yeah. Yeah. Actually, we did a draft with a, with a huge amount of vocal effects that I think scared the shit out of Julie and <laughs> Johanna. But so he made the final piece. No, uh-uh, because after we did a draft, that's when I was in the room with him and, and we sat down and tweaked it a bunch. I, you know, I, I've had a, this is about my fifth probably radio piece, so I've had enough, uh, uh, I've had a, enough encounters with Pro Tools to know my way around a little bit. So it wasn't that I just turned it over, I, I co-produced. So you made, you made it there with him or you made it finally back at your place? Um, over in the U.S. He was in New York. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I asked you whether, you know, uh, about using your own voice or whether when you write it's your own voice you hear. Uh, and you said, well, I use me because I'm available. I'm, I'm the cheapest actor I know. <laughs> if, uh, if anybody could read this, would it be you? I mean, do, do you ever hear another voice? Well, because this, this came out of the memoir, I did think of it as my voice. But, but I've done radio pieces with, uh, I did a radio play for the next big thing uh, a couple of years ago. Um, which had multiple characters, and we got actors for that, and I've done other pieces with actors. So in a fictional context, obviously, I think about characters, I think about uh, performance and so forth, but this piece lent itself to me. When you hear it, did anything change in the way you heard it? When you, Is this the first time you've heard it in front of people? Um, yeah, yeah. Did it sound the way you wanted it to? Um, all I could think of was how incredibly terrified I was. I was having trouble listening to it that way. But, um, yeah, it sounded probably even a little more, uh, creepy than I had imagined. <laughs> the, uh, questions? Anybody? In the, in the, this, uh, we'll come up to the mic and I'll ask another. I mean, in the, this piece comes with the whole weight of the book before it, uh, and yet, you know, this piece exists you know, just by itself is this kind of litany. Does that, does it feel, I mean, because it's, you know, it, it's so dark and so heavy. Does it feel like it exists in that kind of abstracted way okay to you? Yeah, I mean, that's, you asked a little bit about, about um, translation and adaptation of literature, and it's a really interesting question to me. When, when a written text can, uh, survive translation, you know, often the movies are horrible and the book suffers a little bit. When it can survive that movement from one medium to another, I think it makes it stronger. So I like to pry the words out of their context sometimes and see if they can survive the transit. So for me, even though in the context of the book, that list of black things is earned by the 400 pages that comes before, right. I wanted to see if if it really does have a musical component. You know, I mean, this piece was constructed like sound art or like spoken word or something, precisely to see if just saying the word black over and over again is a beautiful thing. I would contend, yes, you know, uh, things repeated are pleasing. So that was the idea. But you cut it, it's not as written, is it? No, it's, I cut it from six pages down to about one and a half, actually. Yeah. yeah. 
Do we have a question? Hi. Yeah, I wanted to know um, how you pitched this piece to the festival. Um, I just gave them the text. <laughs> yeah, that was it. It rises or falls based on whether you like the words on the page, I guess. I hope that doesn't mean you can't believe they accepted it. (laughs) (laughs) I do spend that. No, because um, I guess I I was thinking about how for something that's much more poetic like that and not necessarily, um, I mean, it is subject-oriented, but it's also not really about that at all, just how... You, exp- how do you, you know, it's like, how do you explain poetry? How do you explain music to somebody um, when, you know, the pitch is such a, it's often a very, you know, literal, like, plan-oriented, you know, this is what I'm going to do, and this is who I'm going to work with. And it's one thing if you're like, okay, this is the location where I'm going to go, and these are people I'm going to talk to. It's another thing when you're, like, dealing with something that's much more intangible. So that was the root of my question. Well, here's this. Actually, I can speak briefly to a point that I was really hoping I would get the chance to make this weekend, and that is what I bring to this conference that probably no one else has here is is a, a completely different set of concerns. And I would make the following analogy. The problem with American literature and contemporary American short fiction right now is that the epiphanies are always in the same place. You open the New Yorker, you look at the first paragraph, you know exactly what's going to happen. I find that stultifying, and I don't want it to be that way. So in my writing, what I'm always trying to do is to find ways to interrupt that predictable trajectory so that we don't always end the reading and get that little moo of humanist recognition. <laughs> you know, I mean, that frankly makes me want to puke. So the thing that I would say to you, that there's a difficulty in radio, especially in a kind of NPR format, that we're getting the epiphanies in the same places. The thing I'm trying to bring with this piece to this uh, context and format is to say, how can we come to think about sound on radio in a completely different way? Not as vehicular, not as always getting to this lovely little humanist moment of recognition, but as an end in itself. I have Rick's pitch here, which has an interesting... Uh, a sentence at the end, this, thus my proposal is for a sound collage of blackness, as blackness is an important component of darkness. A big component of darkness. Yeah, pretty, pretty big. Uh, a- any other questions for Rick? Hi. Um, I know that when I do a piece, it generally goes through like, Five different stages. Like I start out thinking it's going to be one thing, and it ends up something totally different. So I'm kind of curious to know, like, what different stages did this piece go through? Um, I'd say that there were two stages. One was the stage in which I cut down what was a pretty long piece of writing to something that was going to be short enough to meet the requirements, uh, which was hard work in itself because it's reductive. I like complexity, and having to boil complexity down to simplicity is alien to my personality, so that was the first part. The second part was just collaboration. I didn't really know what I was going to get with this other guy. The, the sound designer guy. And that's been true of every radio piece I've done. I've, I've found really interesting collaborators. I did a piece for um, the next big thing with this, one of my absolute biggest heroes on earth, this composer Meredith Monk. 
Um, and it was, uh, one of the high moments of my life collaborating with her. So the, the X factor really in the process for me is how does the collaboration work? How is it going to work? Is it going to be easy? Is it going to be fraught with difficulty? And will you get to that amazing spot where the, the result is, is absolutely in between the collaborator somewhere? I, I thought you, you and he made a, a bold and, and really, Again, sort of like the egg yolk moment where the sound, at the mention of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the sound went away, and then the true sound of blackness again, which is silence. Uh, uh, you were, you were just left alone, uh, for the Yeah. Uh, I like that too. It's the disco concept, letting the instruments drop out, you know. <laughs> Did you, uh, one last question from me, and this, unless somebody, we'll move on in a second, but you said something interesting about a sort of a revelation or an epiphany moment that you had hearing John Cheever read The Swimmer and that you understood it differently in his voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The Swimmer, a great short story by John Cheever. If you, if you haven't read it, seek it out. Um, and I had had a really, um, fervent relationship with that text as a younger writer, and then sometime in my mid-twenties, suddenly got the recording of him reading it, and uh, my reading of it was changed forever. Once you hear a writer actually read a text, the way you parse the paragraphs in your ear inside your head is is ever after changed. And that's part of this journey of wanting to be involved with radio and sound for me is to try and create an environment um, where my own interpretation of my works has some life in addition to the the one in which readers... Uh, engaged by themselves. Well, thanks, Rick, and I'm glad you're working with us alongside. Thanks. Hi. I have one more question, if I could just squeeze it in there. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, thanks. Quick. Um, uh, I know this is a year where the documentary kind of means many different things. We've seen so many different documentaries, and I guess I'm just curious how this piece is a documentary to you um luckily i'm not the one who programmed this event so i don't really care all that much but but the 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 gentleman who spoke earlier about fiction and nonfiction commingling and 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 creating a an ambiguous environment between the two in a radio context i felt was saying something that's very intriguing to me and very close to my heart i think genre in general is ex post facto it's true in literature too nobody wakes up and says this sentence is going to be fiction they wake up and say I'm going to make a great sentence, you know. So I made the piece, and I'll leave it to other people to figure out its genre. If I remember correctly, you said genre is a is a problem for bookstore owners. Not yeah, for exactly. It's just for shelving purposes. <laughs> Jude Fletcher, uh, her piece is called Memento Mori, uh, and it's. Uh, about pictures, not about sound. Do you have anything to say before you started, or is it all kind of... We'll so this is this introductionless radio. See, we don't need hosts. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have the little light pan, though. <laughs> yes. One morning, I opened my junk drawer, and a photo I had long forgotten about had worked its way to the top. It was a picture of my Uncle Jelmer, in his casket, hands folded, a close-up. His pale, made-up face with its tightly drawn lips creeped me out. 
I didn't shoot this picture and wouldn't. But some in my family think it's a perfectly good way to remember a loved one. Dead, not alive. Me, I just don't get it. Finding that photo of Jelmer inspired me to go back to Story City, Iowa, to see my mother's family and to find out why they take these snapshots. First stop, Aunt Mavis's house. Mavis, who was married to Jelmer for 53 years, was happy to show me her photo album. We sat side by side on the living room couch, going through her pictures. Well, this album was taken at the time my husband passed on. However, this um, particular book backtracks just a little bit while my husband was still fairly well, I would say. And then there's also a picture of the drill team that another granddaughter was in, in a parade in a nearby town. This photo on this next page is a a five-by-seven. It's of my husband in the casket. Why did you think it was a good idea to take pictures of Jelmer? Well, it's just closure for me. It's something that uh, you only go through probably for your spouse once in a lifetime. And, and you like to be able to recapture what it was like. How do you feel when you look at them? Well, I didn't look at them again right away because it was a little difficult. But as time goes by, I'm very glad that I have them. While I sit with Mavis flipping the pages, it's a strange experience. One page smiling drill team, the next dead Jelmer. A once common practice in the 19th century called memento mori, taking pictures of the dead, is now almost considered taboo, macabre. Back then, professional photographers would come into the home after a death to make a last portrait. These portraits would be displayed like any other, on a wall or in an album. But when's the last time you saw that at someone's house? You don't. Hardly anyone takes them anymore. And of the ones that do, they don't show them to others. It's a very personal thing. Dennis Soderstrom has been the local mortician in Story City for 46 years. And here's his take on it. We've had some discussions of this at some of the international meetings. A little bit of it has been explained uh, trying to create a memory picture for the family if we can do that and retain that. For instance, uh, we had one family where it was a young person that passed away, and when uh, they did, we set the casket visitation area up so that it was just the same as her bedroom. With uh, She had like 400 stuffed animals, and the family did take some pictures that way. That's the idea of postmortem photos. They're memory pictures, and like some memories, they're not always welcome. When I returned home from the first vacation I'd taken by myself at 19, my cat, Kiki, wasn't at the door to greet me. That cat meant everything to me. When I asked my mother where Kiki was, she showed me a Polaroid of my cat in a box. Stiff. Dead. Just in case I wanted to see him one last time. Fourteen years ago, when my mom died, someone in the family took a picture of her in her casket and mailed it to me. But Who? I hadn't seen it at Mavis's. I had a nagging suspicion that it was my Aunt Lois, and I only had to go next door to find out. Needing a Confederate, I corralled my brother Fletcher into going with me. There's Uncle Myron. Yeah. 
With Aunt Lois, I hit the jackpot. Here was the album, just full of dead people. Everyone was in there. Okay, I'm starting with Arnold, and his picture's there if you're ready for that. That's Arnold in his casket. Isn't that awful? And this is your husband? Yeah. But they didn't even know if they should show Arnold because he was kind of puffed, puffed up, I think, in his face. Now it starts with Dad. And then Mother will come next. There's there's Mom. There's Mom. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, dear. There's your yellow roses. Yeah, I remember this. Oh, my God. Remember the... IVs. Yeah. Yeah, She had the IVs in her Mm -hmm. hands, so the handkerchief is there to cover the... I'm sure. The punctures. But remember, we had them take that nail polish off because they did that in San Francisco. <laughs> oh, oh. And it was... <laughs> and it, we were so shocked. And I interviewed Mark Bokey, and he remembered that. He said, oh, I thought your mom had just had her nails done. <laughs> and he took it off because mom didn't wear nail polish ever. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's right. Has anyone in the family ever said anything to you about taking these pictures of dead people? Just my Aunt Ida. She didn't want the picture of her mother. She said, I don't think you should have pictures of mother when she's dead. And so I'd like you to get rid of that picture. And of course I didn't get rid of the picture. I thought, well, she's my grandmother, I could keep it. But you still have the picture. Yes, I kept the picture. (laughs) Lois had extra photos of Mom at her funeral and offered them to me, just in case I wanted to make a book of dead relatives. While I firmly but politely said, no thanks, I did end up taking a Polaroid of my grandma in her casket. My brother asked, what are you taking that for? I think I took it because of how shockingly awful she looked. These pictures have a sort of sideshow quality to them. They repel yet intrigue, but they don't have cherished memories attached, and I'm not the only one who feels this way. Here's my cousin Lori. I actually try to avoid looking at them. (laughs) I just don't agree with taking pictures of people in caskets, and I would never do that. Do you have any particular response? It doesn't capture the essence of the spirit, and it's almost like if you get a letter from a dear one, and you framed the envelope. I mean, it's like saving the empty body. It's not the spirit of the person. They're not there anymore. So I don't understand keeping a picture of someone in a casket. My brother says that it's hard for people to let go, to say goodbye and that post-mortem photos constitute some sort of strange souvenir of the deceased. Now that I'm home again, one thing is clear. I have to get that album from Lois, the one with my mother in it. Otherwise, it'll end up at her estate sale, picked up by some post-mortem photo collector, or even used on the cover of some mediocre band CD. So I called Lois and asked her if I could have her album someday. She fretted over the fact that it wasn't complete yet, that the last two pages were still blank. I pointed out she had plenty of material to fill them, and she should start on volume two now. I mean, my great-uncle died just last week. So, there you go. Sometimes I think it's best if you just don't open the drawer. Now I have more dead people coming into my house, arriving by the bookful, which makes me worry. Am I just as morbid as the photos?
Or, even worse, I've inherited the family trait. I love the sound design in this because it's so gentle and uh, the the first appearance of a sound, the grandfather clock, which, you know, I mean, I would have that same question. Was was that an, the actual clock? And, yeah. Yeah. and um, then all the sound after that seemed to take from that notion of chimes. It's sort of funny for me, like, um, well, there were grandfather clocks everywhere I went in, in Story City. Every person I interviewed had a grandfather clock, huh. but I actually recorded it at my aunt Mavis's. I, we, um, so that was definitely going to be in there, and I already knew that I was going to use Sigaras before I even did the piece. I mean, I knew that if this I love I like Sigaras, and there was this one particular Sigaras cut that just seemed to work. So part of it was being very judicious with this one piece because there are like maybe three may, three elements in it that I could move around, and I had to decide where they were going to go and how I was going to mix them together because that was the song I was going to use. Mm-hmm. I did like five musical endings for this piece, and that was the one we, we It was interesting at the end because your vocal tone was not, not wise-ass, but it was a little tongue-in-cheek. You know, you had an attitude, but the music gave us real counterpoint to that. Well, because sometimes I'm kind of like that. <laughs> we are what we are. You know, I mean, I did, I, I did a voice, I did an initial voice track that was much more low key, and um, the comment uh, was that I should be a little more honest. So I said, "All right, I'll be a little more honest," and that's where that happened. I, I just rewrote the script sort of entirely, just kind of got rid of the first one, rewrote it all over again, and then we combined the two. A lot of work went into it. And I, I mean, I, I'd love to, um, I mean, you know, the one part, probably the hardest part of doing this read was I always start crying when I tell the Kiki story. Uh. I would always choke up and crack up in the studio. And I'm doing it right now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I, uh, I guess, and I had already started doing this piece even before uh, the theme Dark came out. I just, um, it's true. I opened my junk drawer and this picture was there. And I was like, you know. And like, and, uh, I was talking to my brother about it. I also opened the New York Times one day and there was a photographer, an artistic photographer taking photographs of these folks in funeral homes in Harlem. They call it, you know, going to the party. And, um, so I interviewed her and, then I interviewed my Aunt Mavis about this, and I was talking to my brother. You know, he was the one who suggested I do this radio piece. So when the theme came out, it was like, I'm doing dark, you know, I'm doing this. So, yeah, so um, I just thought it was an idea that resonated because in the with the people I talk to, it's either you think it's fine to take these pictures or you think it's awful. They just really creep you out, freak you out. And I'm, I started off on the freaked out part, and... Then after talking about them, about to morticians and postmortem photo collectors, one-hour photo guys that, you know, some some guys in the one-hour photo places won't even develop them. Others, they'll say, "Hey, you do this. I'm not doing it." You know. But I mean, I I interviewed um, a visual anthropologist who kind of wrote the book on it. I mean, I sort of like now I've I've probably got more information about death and our attitudes toward death, especially when it comes to photography, um, about, 
the funeral business and its history, the history of mourning in America. So now I'm sort of like this walking. <laughs> and now I can actually look at them. And they still freak me out. I'd never take them. But uh, I can actually look at them without shuddering or getting that sense of cognitive dissonance that I got when I first opened the drawer. And like I said, maybe that's not such a good thing. But Jude and I talked about whether we would project them up here. If we did, would you? How many people would not want to see them? Yeah, more and more and more. So uh, it was interesting that that Johanna accepted this piece as an idea because she really wanted to hear about it, but refuses to look at the pictures, even though they've been emailed to her. I, I wouldn't want to see them just because the radio picture is so much more interesting. I think, you know, I mean, it just just ha- it evokes so much for you to describe that first image and. What I thought was great in the story, um, among many things, I felt there were images throughout that you weren't saying but that I saw. You know, the voices had so much character to them that I, I felt like I could see. And the names, by the way, of your family. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the moment when they're huddled around the pictures and you just sort of hear them murmuring and, uh, and you could, it's so visual at that moment. Um, I wondered if you had any dead baby Photos, because I know that I've seen them. That's what they used to do in the 1800s, right? Yeah. And did you come across? They still that? do There's that. the Michael Lessie book, the Wisconsin yeah. Death. I read Trip. Wisconsin Death Trip while I was working on this piece, and that's the book everybody thinks of. But if you're really into this, if you can get your hands on a copy of it, Sleeping Beauty by Stanley Burns. He's a doctor, and he has this whole. He, he's he's got tons of photos from the 19th century. Most of them are pretty morbid, but um, it's out of print. If you can find a copy, it's like around $500, but it's an amazing, it's, it's an amazing book. I got it at the UC Berkeley Library. So, I mean, because I thought Only 500 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very taboo subject, obviously, if you're going to go anywhere. But um, what I thought was so successful about your piece was that I really felt the queasiness in your stomach, in my stomach, as you were talking about it. And then I felt your arc, you know, by the end, kind of coming to acceptance. So, congrats. Thank you. If anybody wants to see the pictures, they are up here. And uh, I hope you do a long piece. I'd really like to. Yeah, like I'd, lo- to hear I'd love it. to. I mean, it was so weird I, because Joanna wouldn't let me put the pictures. Julie wanted this picture on the website next to the blurb. And my aunt said, Well, I really would rather you didn't use Jelmer for the website. She says, Why? My uncle Myron had died two weeks before that. She goes, Well, let's just use Myron because his kids will never see it, you know? And so. Um, when the website went up, and I, what I did is I took a picture of Lois and Mavis with, with their cameras, you know, when, when we were back there visiting. And I sent them the link, and I didn't hear anything. And I thought, oh, they're really mad that i am got this piece coming up, that it sounds like that. Not at all. Uh, a week later, she goes, oh, I should have gotten to you sooner. Um, sorry, I haven't been in touch. But she says, here are the pictures of Myron that you were supposed to use for the website. <laughs> So, I mean, it just keeps going. And <laughs> I, I wish we could take more questions, but we got, fell a little bit behind on that. So we, uh, and I think we're going to run over a tiny bit anyway. Okay, well, let's, we can come back. I mean, I think we should still go forward uh, to uh, Hugh Levinson. Uh, Hugh, do you have anything to say before? Uh, I, just, I just wanted to say that was a, you had a top tip earlier, and here's my torch flashlight, which I always carry. Um, So if anybody tries to leave, I can probably get you uh, with this. So Anyway, enjoy. 
On a winter's night in England, the darkness seems to go on and on. The sun vanishes before four in the afternoon, and it's gone until after nine the next morning. You can almost hear the hiss of the blackness. Two centuries on, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's words echo through the dark. The frost performs its secret ministry, unhelped by any wind. At my side, my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. It is calm, indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. At 2:45 a.m. on a dark night, 13th of November, Jamie arrived, our firstborn. Alison and I had expected an explosion of sounds, crying, lullabies, toys, coughing, wailing. Cooing grannies, all the noises you'd expect around a newborn. Well, I'll read that first bit then, and then, yeah, I wrote this on the twentieth of November, which is a week. He was one week old. I could cry and cry to think you're finally here on the outside, not the inside. Little movements you make remind me of movements you made inside me. The little bottom in the air, the spasm of the fingers and the hands. The look of careful concentration on your face when faced with a new experience, a trip in the sling or in the pram. But at least we thought during those short periods when he was asleep, things would quieten down. Now I don't know why I wrote this. He doesn't tap dance, does he? No, no, no. He'll be no trouble. <laughs> It is calm, indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. That's normal. That's what Kerridge says. But we were wrong, and so was he. As Jamie went to sleep, the audio show started. He was as noisy asleep as awake. Well, almost. Do you remember? Do you remember what the night was like? Because it was so dark. Because it was winter. Yeah. It was sort of punctuated by, by, by these percussive sort of noises, and it sort of he'd hammer a little hole in the peaceful night, wouldn't he? What could I do? Dig out my mini disc machine and hang the mic over the side of the cot. To Alison's amused disgust, as the night wore on, Jamie put on a carnival of sound: some human, some animal, some industrial. Snuffles, wheezes, snorts, mini snorts, grunts, mini grunts, trombone, steam whistle, air escaping from pistons. Steam brake, industrial press, depth charge, fingernails on a blackboard, backwards guitar, rim shot, dolphin clicks, seal, closer, baby elephant, lost baby elephant, dear babe, sleepest cradled by my side, piglet, 
whose gentle breathings heard in this deep calm. Piglet rooting for acorns. Fill up the interspersed vacancies. Piglet getting desperate. And momentary pauses of the thought. Here's a synopsis for a story that's never been written. The female character is extremely pissed off at the good suggestions from her partner on getting the babies to sleep, which always work. <laughs> it, it ends horribly. <laughs> What were you up to, Jamie? What distant lands were you visiting in your sleep? I know that when we dream, we process everything we've seen and heard during the day. And newborn babies are hearing a lot for the first time. All those muffled sound waves they felt in the womb are now bombarding them loud and clear. So are your snorts and grunts the sound of your dreams? All seasons shall be sweet to thee. Whether the eavesdrops fall, heard only in the trances of the blast, or if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. As the winter turned to spring, then to summer, as the darkness retreated and the light and warmth seeped into our bedroom, your snuffles and hoots gradually receded. We got more sleep. But still, I missed your bizarre nightly sound show. Of course, you hadn't exactly fallen silent. Your journey to the limits of human vocalization had just moved into the light. The sounds you're making in your waking hours were becoming just as varied and colourful, and the volume knob was way up. Well, it's July. And we're on holiday in northern Spain, and we've just discovered this uh, abandoned church up a gravel path, and there's plaster peeling off the walls, and it's quite dark in here, and there are bats in what we think is the vestry. But one of the things about being here is that Jamie has discovered echoes. I like the ending on the mother's breathing in like that uh, uh, intake. Was it was it dark in that church? It's the darkest sounding place we've heard this yeah, morning. Yeah, incredibly dark. Uh, I mean, we, we had to shut the door because the dog you heard outside. This is an incredibly scary dog, and it was it's an old farmhouse with a chapel attached, and so the dog lived in the farmhouse. So he sort of ran in, sort of bolted the door, and and um, yes, it, it was pitch dark in there. Yeah. There was a virtuosic mix in the middle of that. I think everybody would recognize. I mean, how did you did you produce? Do you have an engineer? How's that? No, work? I, I did it. 
Yeah. On, on, we use Sadie, uh-huh. which is like Pro Tools. It's an English system. So, so, so I, mean, I mean, I could have got somebody else to do it, but I thought it would be too annoying for somebody else to do, so I did it myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you're a public affairs producer. This is, this is not usual for you. Can you talk a little about that and why you ch- chose? Yeah, I mean, mainly I produce a more straight current affairs documentary, uh, very news-based. And I've done a couple of things um, which are more sound-based. Um, there's a slot called Between the Ears on Radio 3, and the most recent thing I did was called I Made Pizza for Kim Jong-il, um, which is about a pizza chef who worked for Kim Jong-il with lots of strange sounds. And um, uh, when I saw this theme, I thought, yeah, I had the, the mini-discs of him anyway, and I didn't know what to do with them. And I thought, aha, aha, I can use them. Uh, and so it was very exciting, um, because I, I couldn't work out how to make a piece out of them, but I wanted to do something with the noise. I mean, I've had a bunch of babies, but yours is, yours is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sign of genius. How did you know apparently. that? <laughs> uh, well, I've talked to some other parents, and some of them said, no, no, their, their babies were similar, made incredible noises. Yeah. And so and one of them said, actually, it was a competition between my husband and the baby as to who was noisier when they were asleep. <laughs> so so some, some of the parents have had it, and some haven't. So, just one of those things. Coleridge obviously didn't. Yeah. So. <laughs> Reading was lovely. Thank you. How about the music? Did you put, did you did you score it and find? Yeah, well, 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 again, the, the music in the second half is a piece I found about two years ago, and I tried to persuade I think two or three other producers to use this bit of music in their pieces, and none of them had. And I really liked this piece of music, so again, I thought, aha, I can use it. And then, the, but I thought it didn't. It needed a change for the second half. There's the first half. Um, I just listened to lots and lots and lots of stuff, and it's actually it's one of these you know CDs of. of uh, music that's recorded in some basement in Germany by a couple of people who say, now today we will be Cubans, and we play like Cubans, you know. Uh, 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 and, um, and this today, and it's, it's a kind of rip-off of Eric Satie and, and Claude Debussy shoved together. Um, it's quite clever when you consider that it's not by either of them. Mm. I, th- I thought... Mm. <laughs> I, like, I think you're I right like about music, that. Yeah. I, okay, go ahead. Yeah, um, I just want to say how delightful it was to hear babies. Um, you know, like in radio, I, I don't know, I can't think of the last time I heard uh, like a baby. You hear little kids sometimes, but but never babies. I wanted to ask, like, you mentioned that you, you didn't think anyone else, it would be annoying for anyone else. How was it for you to listen to when you make a piece, you listen to these sounds over and over and over again? Like, did did that sort of litany of, of what those sounds sounded like come from listening to those noises? Yes, over exactly. And over and over yeah, again? Yeah, because, I mean, I had about, I don't know how many hours worth of this stuff, and I just dubbed it all in Sadie. And as I was listening, I, I took about seven or eight pages of notes and tried to describe <laughs> the sounds. I love uh, the and piglet so just getting that desperate. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? Piglet getting desperate. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that yeah. one the best, I think. Well, yeah, it was beautiful. Thank you. That's one of the great pleasures, I think, of this work and, and, and the tools we have now is that we really can indulge our sort of obsessive interest in crafting stuff that nobody else would have the patience to do. Yeah. I mean, some yeah. of the stuff that's on transom lately, uh, you know, some of the flash pieces, I don't know if any of you saw things like the fair, uh, which were which took months and months and months mm-hmm. of a guy sitting in his bedroom with the computer until he had it the way he wanted it. But uh, I don't know. That's that's one thing I like about what we all do is the and, that, and the feeling you get when you hear that piece of work that somebody else became so insane over. <laughs> do we have any other questions? 
Well, let me. Can, I want can to I put in my plug. Hmm? Can I put in my plug? Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, world in your ear, I bet. Yes. Right? yes. Uh, uh, um, this is a kind of opportunity for us because in our department of the BBC, we produce a series called "A World in Your Ear," um, which is excerpts from English language radio from around the world between sort of a minute, three minutes, four minutes, um, and we're really looking for anything interesting that you think should be heard. Something fantastic. It could be news. It could be documentary. It could be montage. It could be anything. If you've got anything, please. Come and see me. Um, I'd be very, very grateful. So thank you for the plug. Let me plug that. Uh, I, I want, I'm going to close. Uh, I want to read something by Rick Moody uh, that I found that I think uh, I, th I think is going to work well. We can go ahead and uh, and I've got some music, uh, some dark darkness music from uh, one of my favorite darkness sources, Tom Waits. Rick wrote this in trying to talk about making books into movies. Sometimes I think words are so beautiful, so flexible, so strange, so lovely that they make me want to weep for their import for their proximity to eternal mysteries. Words are the oldest information storage and retrieval system ever devised. Words are probably older than the cave paintings in France. Words have been here tens of thousands of years longer than film, moving pictures, video, and digital video. And words will likely be here after those media, too. When the electromagnetic pulse comes in the wake of the nuclear blast, those computers and digital video cameras and videotape recorders that are not melted outright will be plastic and metal husks used to prop open doors. Not so with the utterances of tongues. Words will remain and the highly complicated and idiosyncratic accounts assembled from them will provide us with the dark news about the blast. The written word will remain scribbled on highway overpasses as a testament to love and rage, as evidence of the wanderers in the ruin. So on that hopeful, apocalyptic note, I want to thank all our producers and you and the festival. Good day. I too want to thank everyone, and I'm, that was a great panel to start the day off. Um, we're going to pepper in some announcements for you after the panel, so we don't give it to you all at once, but please... Take our words to heart. Tonight's performance, Joe Frank, is going to start hard at 7.30. I mean, exactly at 7.30. So uh, please get there in plenty of time to, to be seated. So that's your announcement for now. We'll be back here. We are running a little bit late, so take about a 10, 12-minute break and be back here for our image as a metaphor. Thanks.
guys there. His name is Ernst. Let's hit your function. How did you get it up? Did it automatically do it before? Yeah. 